Welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, your host. Glad you could join me as we adventure into the uplands with our good friends and our good dogs. Beautiful places and the camaraderie that comes from sharing the field with folks that you know and love. We got a great podcast in store for you. We're going back inside the industry today with a couple different things, hardware and software. Software of the four-legged variety, yeah. Mike Mapes will join us from Second Chance Bird Dogs, learn all about how they're doing and what they're doing. Seen this guy from the very beginning, what an incredible story that'll be. And then talk about incredible stories. This company's been around for a long time. There to serve shotgunners from high-vis sites. We get Renee Hernandez and Trevor Young. We'll talk all things shotgunning. No matter what your style of shooting, we will talk about it this week on the Upland Nation podcast. And speaking of that, I asked a question on uh, social media about your shooting style, and uh, I think you'll be surprised at the answers, and you'll probably take something away from those as well. So stick around for all of that. It's made possible by uh, Purina Pro Plan Sport and High Viz Shooting Systems. And True Lock Choke Tubes and MidwayUSA.com, Mid Valley Clays and Shooting School, Pointer Shotguns, and Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products. Well, a hot one again, but we got a little breeze this afternoon, so we got in a second session working with Flick on the uh, wing shot and fall thing. No more half hitch. Birds flying a little bit farther by clipping their wings a little bit less and uh, adding a few gunshots just to keep things exciting. And uh, another good one. Had a breeze. Even though it's 85, 86 degrees out there, it was worth a, a short run and a good long hold after the bird hit the ground. So uh, whew, that's what we're working on these days. How about yourself? Uh, I hear a lot of people getting up early doing some conditioning in the warm weather still got to cut the miles a little bit unless you are uh, one of those night owl types and you can see in the dark but uh, uh, working here and sounds like working for many of you as well Um, asked on Facebook recently because as you know shooting better is one of my priorities and one of yours as well asked you uh, how you do it you know, do you sustain lead? Do you swing through or poke and hope? Churchill method? You know, the whole bit. The answers were enlightening, that's for sure. Lance Larson, uh, you ought to be a rider, Lance. Great woodcarver. Pretty good rider, too. Lance says, one eye on the bird, one eye on my dog. Shoot, and then shoot again. He's seriously, the less I concentrate, the better I shoot. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know the feeling. It's absolutely true. Lynn Glock says, you're holding a broom and sweeping the bird out of the sky, supposedly. Yeah. Uh, Charles Harris, does hope and pray count? (laughs) Yeah. It better or else I'm in big trouble. Um, Let's see. Robert Smith says, take my time to watch, then swing through and get the right lead. You know, um, this is one thing I've been working on a lot, and I, I understand why. And, and Vandy Fiedler over at Mid-Valley Clays really clued me into this. First off, you, you soften your focus before the bird flies, so you're not looking at anything in particular, but you're looking at everything. And then 
take your time. Once the bird gets in the air, you got a lot more time than you think. Focus on that bird before you do anything else. While you're focusing on the bird, you're subconsciously moving anyway. Just don't bring the gun up until it's time to pull the trigger. Great tip, Wolfie. Thanks a lot. Instinctive, kind of, is Bruce Olson's approach. Uh, Stephen Wood says he misses, mostly. <laughs> um, Andy McCormick of uh, Pointer Shotguns. Andy Great advice. It depends on the situation, the bird, the angle of retreat, etc., etc. Both eyes open, one of the constants. Nose to knuckle down on the gun. Open stance. Index finger on the forehand pointed towards your prey. And follow through. Well, if you've been listening to the podcast for the last few weeks, you know those are all the bits of advice rolled into one from every great shooter and great shooting instructor that we've had on the show recently. Uh, Sustained lead for Kip Sweem. Mike Robinson, same. Um, Kevin McLaughlin says, focus on the bird. Visualize the bird exploding in a puff of feathers. Yeah, that's kind of, uh, what is that? Sports psychology kind of a thing, that visualization. I like that. Um, Oh, then squeeze the trigger, cuss, rack another shell. Cover his backside with the barrel. Squeeze again, rack another, and maybe watch him fall. (laughs) Yeah, isn't that the truth? Um, Let's see. There were a couple others. For flushes, swing through. For incoming, sustained lead. For flushing woodcock, poke and hope. That's Leslie Hawkinson's wisdom for shooting. Um, Let's see. Ralph Klimach never really thinks about his shot. The gun comes up and the bird goes down. Man, I wish I could say that. Great advice, and there's a lot more big, big, big list of comments there on the Facebook pages. So that's where most of the discussion takes place. Go to Wing Shooting USA or Upland Nation. Either of those, there's always a great um, great question or two for you to con- consider and go from there. We're brought to you in part by Purina Pro Plan Sport Dog Food. Learn more about all their formulations at Pro Plan Sport. Dot com. You know, if you're an athlete, and we all are, maybe less serious than we could be, but we're still athletes, we need the same thing our dog needs, and that is VO2 max. Concentrated nutrition will optimize that for your dog. That is the ability to turn oxygen that we breathe into energy. That becomes increased endurance during a hunt. It comes from a high protein with real meat as a first ingredient. The protein in turn creates amino acids that nourish the muscles, including the crucial time after exercise to promote recovery. So if you're going on a two, three, five, nine day hunt, think about Purina, Pro Plan Sport. Yeah, learn more at ProPlansport.com. Just got myself a new propane-powered coffee maker from MidwayUSA.com. Yeah, they got all that camping stuff, too. But they have all the hunting stuff you'll need as well, including a vast array of ammunition. I know it's not like it was a couple years ago, but if you're having trouble finding ammo, you'll probably find it at MidwayUSA.com. And 20,000 other products will ship free. So take a look at everything they carry, which is just about everything for shooting hunting in the outdoors at midwayusa.com customer satisfaction and engagement is their number 
one goal. Game on Board is a sponsor here at the Upland Nation podcast, and now we have them both. Uh, we have two of the, well, I'll call them almost the original employees at High Viz Sites. H I V I Z. Maybe we'll get into that as well. Renee Hernandez and Trevor Young join us from various places out there. The company, well, I'll let Renee start. Renee, welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. Well, thank you for having me. You have been with the company since almost since uh, since its founding. Tell me a little bit about the background of you and the company and, and, and where you guys are these days. Great. Well, um, I'm Renee Hernandez. I'm actually the plant manager now here at Hyvis, and I have been with the company for about 24 years now. Um, Hyvis actually started and was founded by Mr. Phil Howe, in 1996. The company originally started in Colorado over in Longmont, Colorado. Um, at that point, um, Phil did have three products that they launched, which was um, three products that are currently right now still our top sellers. And then in 24, I think it was around 2014, we decided to make the move to Laramie, Wyoming. And that's where we reside right now. Um, you know, right now we seem to have, and we've grown quite a bit. We used to ship out of a, seemed like an office. <laughs> now we have two buildings that we continue to keep people working and continue to make products these days. Yeah, that move to Wyoming was fascinating to me. I've I, I worked with the state of Wyoming a lot on various projects, and they seem to be pretty aggressive about recruiting, especially uh, companies in in the firearms industry was that part of the motivation? Yes, I mean definitely Colorado had some changes in the gun laws, and definitely Phil at that point wanted to support a state that can support our industry, yeah. and that was the reason why um, Phil decided to move the company to Wyoming. And then, as we see now, a lot of other companies are starting to move this way as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Trevor Young, you're um, you're involved uh, on uh, slightly more on the what I'll call the technical side, and that's in the broadest sense of the term. But why don't you tell everybody a little bit about the the principal types of products that Hi-Viz manufactures and how they work? Yeah, thanks for having us on the show uh, on the podcast. So we. As Renee said, we started out making shotgun sights. So our, our first product really was the magnetic, and, and I'll call them fiber optic, Yeah. Uh, shotgun sights. So that was the first product. And then we expanded that into some other uh, shotgun, uh, you know, you may say variations of, the, of a similar type of sight. And today we make sights for handguns, shotguns, rifles of all kinds. Of course, we don't make a sight for everything. Uh, that would be uh, terribly difficult. But, you know, basically what we do is we make a fiber optic type sites. We also have sites with tritium in them or tritium and fiber optic. Uh, and, they're, and they're really a product that's designed to help you get a faster site picture, a better site picture, be more aware of your sites in all shooting situations and just aid people at, at being better shooters. 
Well, that's why we're talking because I could use all the help I can get. And you say acquire a better sight picture. And I just, I wanted you to take me another step further on that because, you know, there are various philosophies about how you shoot a shotgun, pointing versus aiming, two beads, three beads, the sight picture, whatever you want to call it. How, do, how does a sight like this, which basically ends up being a bright um, something on the end of the a shotgun barrel, how does that help you acquire the target? Yeah, there are, you know, in the shotgunning world, I mean, I really think for our company, uh, you know, our bread and butter, if you will, uh, still today, and our kind of foundation is really in shotgun sites. Yeah. And I think we, we dominate as a, as a uh, accessory in that area. So, of course, we, and, and this goes for, you know, both hunting, recreational, and, of course, competition shooting. So, you're going to certainly encounter differing opinions in that world of competition shooters, no doubt about it. But in general, you know, there, there are definitely some people and, and uh, you know, that are of the mind that you don't want a bead to be more impressing, you know, than it already is because you don't want it as a, let's say, a distraction, some might say. But I think we find quite the opposite with the bulk of shooters, and and we support competition shooters, you know, in the in the tops of their games in, in almost every type of shotgun and competition, and of course hunting. And for me, I think really uh, there's some interesting things that we see. One, I think that having the sight so visible actually produces the opposite effect that you do not look at it as much. Because that, especially if you're, say, in a hunting situation or a sport game where you're using a low mount, uh, you're not pre-mounted, that sight becomes so uh, ingrained and so visible in your peripheral vision that I don't think you look at it or notice it nearly as much. And, and I mean, the, the truth is, is when we shotgun, I mean, it's a hand-eye coordination type of, uh, of shooting uh, discipline. You have to know where the muzzle of that shotgun is in relation to the target but yet not focus on it so i really think that's what our product does is it allows you to pick it up faster you know interesting a our, our old vice president rick uh, who's a, a longtime shotgun or level three instructor you know they did you know some some sort of uh not not so uh, laboratory type experimental shooting yeah. but when we talk to some of our pro staff, say that shoot like say ski, or especially ski, what we'd find is they weren't necessarily breaking always more targets, but they were breaking them faster and sooner. Now that that's fascinating. You've just boiled it down. Thank you. We're done. Um, but you you just made it so simple to me. Um, you, you're you're abs- in my mind at least. I I see the logic there. You're you're actually not looking at at the muzzle but it's there and you use the term i think peripheral vision but yeah we do have to have a relationship but we just don't need to fixate on the muzzle end versus the target end am i hearing that correctly that's what i would say and before i started working for the company uh you know and i i shoot um, sporting type shotgun stuff, not really as a competition, more as a recreation, but I hunt. And the type of hunting I do a lot more, say, than upland bird is waterfowl. Mm-hmm. And 
I would find that in the morning, so before I worked for the company, I looked at getting a site because I was hunting, you know, in that half hour before, uh, you know, real sunrise where I could hunt. I could see silhouetted birds, but I was having a hard time finding it in my shotgun. Uh, so really what it is, is it just, you know, it makes it to where, you know, because let's face it, as shotgunners, if we take a millisecond to look for the end of the muzzle, we've probably missed the shot. Yeah, no, absolutely. And in fact, that is probably the argument that most shooting instructors will use for pointing versus aiming. They don't really mean that, I bet. I bet they mean just don't, don't look at the end of the barrel first. Correct. Correct. You know, and I, I suffer from <laughs> all the plagues that other people do. Some, so maybe may more so, you know, stopping, um, you know, lack of follow through, you know, I've got to watch my mouth, all, all those things. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, uh, knowing where my muzzle is in relation to the target is just no longer one of the issues I have. I love you know, it. And I, I mean, uh, uh, the, the site, it becomes, you know, another interesting thing, really interesting thing that I've seen in working here. I've been at Ives 16 years and I've managed customer service and I've talked to a lot of customers. So I've talked about every conceivable, uh, probably, you know, shotgunning issue that, that all shotgunners see. But one thing I found really interesting is we, with our product, we offer a variety of diameters, of viewing end diameters for the fibers mm-hmm. and which product you select. And I, you know, it's not 100% across the board, but in general, this is what we see is people want the biggest dot they can get to start. And I think the more they use the product, they always graduate down to a smaller bead because it, it is so visible and it becomes such a useful tool that they, they don't need it so imposing and it allows them to really see the target, but yet be aware of the muzzle. Yeah, I believe it. It, it makes sense. I mean, uh, whether it's us or, or the dog we're training or any other skill we're acquiring, yeah, we, we need the massive, massive crutch. And then we go to the walking cast and, uh, and then we go to the ACE bandage and uh, I get all that. In fact, that's a good place for Renee to come in and tell us, you know, we're talking about these sites, but they're not sites. They're not little beads. They're all sorts of brightly colored other things. Renee, how would you physically describe a fundamental high vis site? It's, it's just not a little bead on the end of the muzzle. Exactly. Um, you know, when Phil um, made the first product, basically what he wanted to do is he wasn't looking at the competitors and what they were doing. He thought, how could we be innovative in making products that work for us and work for our customers? And a lot of our sites are made for our sites. So the light pipes themselves, they're not just extruded rods. They're actually molded to make for the sites that we're making. So if you're looking at a shotgun site, we might have three or four, you know, I can't remember exactly the amount of number of different light pipes we have, but the light pipes are made for the site themselves. Yeah. What we try to do is get as much light gathering as we can to make sure that the brightest out there. It, it, and light gathering, I get it. And, and if anybody shoots, uh, say, you know, handgun or a long, long gun, they probably understand sights and light gathering too, or art, you know, archery guys for that matter. Uh, but I'm looking at as an assortment of one. There's at least seven in this card right here in front of me, all different colors, 
and they're at least an inch, inch and a quarter long. Is that part of the light gathering? Is the fact that there's so much surface area? It, it can be on some sites, but if you would look at like our Trivis site, that's you know one of our top turkey sites, it's got triangles on it. Uh-huh. When first, um, Bill first came out with this site. You know, everybody thought it was impossible. It was a triangle. Was anybody going to ever buy on it? And actually won a product uh, award at Shot Show. And really, that site was to get as much light to the tip of the triangle. Uh-huh. So again, depending on the site, we had to make the light pipe be able to be the brightest. Doesn't always have to be the longest to gather the light, uh-huh. but it has to be the technology to be able to push that light to the front. And is that a matter of the material it's made out of, or is it a matter of the? Well, it could be a different color. There are various colors I'm looking yeah, at right no. now. Exactly. We have tested many different colors, but the thing is on the design. So with the Trivis, we had to try to cut angles and everything in it to actually gather the light to the tip. So it's just not like a triangle that you're looking at. If you look at the Trivis, you'll actually see the tips of it light up. Yeah. So that's exactly what I'm talking about, of being able to, it's around the engineering, how do we get that light to the front and be able to be brighter than everybody else? I love it. You're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. We're going to school on high-vis sites here. We have Renee Hernandez and Trevor Young of the company. The company's based in Wyoming now, uh, That which is a good enough excuse for me to come visit. Um, but uh, I, I'm intrigued by the, the thought behind all this. And back in the day when Phil Howe was coming up with this idea, uh, what do you think inspired that? Trevor, you got any thoughts on that? You know, uh, I mean, I, th- I think uh, it is really just a, a idea of something more visible, something bolder, uh, and the, of course, the magnetic site being the first site we made, that was very innovative. Uh, I, I actually think we are still the only company that makes a magnetically attached site. So, it, yeah, it was really going outside of the norm, mm-hmm. uh, especially at that time, you know, fiber optic sites or uh, other types of uh, you know, di- different methods uh, on all types of sites these days is a lot more common, but in 1996, it sure was. So that was, that was definitely a uh, kind of a hard road to, to push. Oh, I, I, I bet. And, you know, I look at it because I'm, I've am i installed uh, a couple on a couple of my shotguns that I'll be using this fall. And uh, and one thing that struck me was um, how simple it is. And I, I none of my guns would take any of the magnetic sights, but they would. it was very simple for me to put those sights on, even as a music major. You know, there's there's not much to them as long as you match the right model to the right gun. It, it, that that's got to have been part of the motivation right there, making it simple for guys like me. Renee, do you face any of that kind of stuff when you're designing and, and manufacturing? I mean, what are the biggest challenges in that world? You know, sometimes it can take months to design something. So sometimes it might be just making sure that's manufacturable. You know, right now we do so many different things that we want to make sure that it works for us, that it makes sense dollar-wise as well as making sure we're coming out with the best product available. You know, we definitely don't cut corners. One thing Phil did from day one is customer service is number one for our company. So no matter if you have our site 
10 years ago or you had it two days ago, no matter what happens with that site, we make sure that we stand behind the product. So again, there's a lot of moving components within our company. Um, you know, our engineers are great trying to design. Phil, to this day, is still working with engineers with new products. Um, so again, just going out there and really trying to find out something new that we can come out with and making sure that it's something that can be sold in the industry. Well, I appreciate some of the things you folks are doing in that world as well. Uh, we'll get to them in the second half of the program. Uh, you're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden. That's Renee Hernandez, along with Trevor Young of High Viz Sites. Just make sure we get the website address if anybody wants to learn more than they are hearing here. Trevor, what is your uh, URL these days? It is Sites. S-I-G-H-T-S dot com. And hi is just H-I. H-I-V-I-Z. Great. We'll be back in just a moment. And welcome back to the Upland Nation podcast. Scott Linden here. I'm joined by two folks from Hi-Viz Sites, Renee Hernandez and Trevor Young. Appreciate you guys making time for me and all my dumb site questions because I need um, I need any assistance I can get when it comes to shooting. And, and uh, yeah, I've mentioned my cross-dominance a million times over the years, and I've done everything in the world to try and fix it, including learning to shoot left-handed. But you guys can actually help us with some of that as well, can't you, Trevor? Absolutely. Yeah, we make a couple products for uh, cross-eye dominant shooters. Uh, and that's a very complex subject, I'm sure, as you know. I like to more refer to it as uh, origin line site. Uh, but the products we make, and there are some other products traditionally that have been available and are also still on the market. And they sort of all really work on the same principle. And, and what it is, is it blocks the view of your bead from your dominant eye or your non-shooting eye. I think personally that our products do it better. Uh, and what we do, the, the two products, they're, they're generically the, the design is called Magna Optics, and we make a screw-attached version, which is the Magna Comp, and we make a magnetic version called the Magna Hunter. And the, the principle... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, geez, that's what I want to know. How does it work? <laughs> yep, so how it works, again, is, it, is it's a fiber optic site, so let's say you have a green or red color, and you're, you want your shooting eye to see that color, so it forces you to obviously establish your line of sight from your shooting eye to the bead to the target. And what it does is it blocks the view of that fiber from your non-shooting eye, and how it does it, is I would equate it very similarly to a rifle scope. So there's a small magnifying chamber in the viewing end of the site that has a lens and an aperture that projects the, the color of the fiber onto that lens. And it's built with a sensitivity that, you know, at average distance, you know, the three or four inches between your eyes, five inches, at the distance to the bead, if you, say, mount the gun right-handed, and you have both eyes open, <clears throat> and you close your right eye, you will not see the fiber optic color with your left eye, and yeah. vice versa if you're shooting the other side. So what it really allows you to do is to shoot with both eyes open and still forces you to establish your line of sight with your shooting. 
You know, it, it strikes me as so many other things, and I've taken lessons from some incredible instructors over the years. Everybody has devices, gizmos, gadgets for all sorts of uh, shooting problems, if you want to call them that. They're all teaching tools. And this, to me, sounds like a, a, a heck of a teaching tool to build that um, hand-eye, pardon the pun, coordination. It's beyond that. There's probably a better term for it. But it just forces your head, literally and figuratively, to do the right thing, doesn't it? It really does. It, uh, this is a really, uh, this is a product we make that I think is, is, uh, greatly underappreciated in the market. Um, we, we will do things like, you know, the magnetic site, for example, gets generically four different riblets. You know, I've given out sets of those to instructors and, uh, so they can identify because as, as you probably know, 40% or upwards of shooters are cross-eyed dominant. So this becomes a real issue with people being successful. And if you can identify those people and get them a site that'll help them be successful, that, that's a tremendous thing, especially when they're a younger shooter. But it, it also is effective for non-cross-eye dominant shooters. It does help you be more disciplined. You know, it, the sensitivity of the site will not say stock, stop you from lifting your head off the stock or those types of things, but it will help you stay disciplined and, and be, you know, not be, let's say, maybe lazy on some shots, especially if you've been shooting a lot during one day. Yeah, I believe it. And, and you know, there's another one out there, and, and Renee, maybe you can address this as well. Uh, by the way, you have a, a great page of uh, shotgunning advice. Well, it's shooting of all sorts, but the top of the page is all shotgunning tips, which I appreciate. And one of them was how you can use um, – your middle bead on the barrel and the muzzle bead, probably a high-vis sight, to check gun fit to a degree. And everybody's looking to get better gun fit. And this this is intriguing to me. Can you talk a little bit about how that works, Renee? Um, yeah, actually, I'd like to turn that over to Trevor. Okay. Trevor would be the one to answer that a little bit more thoroughly for you. Great. All right. Trevor, what do you say? Yeah, uh, you know, the it's very important, and, you know, avid shotgunners are probably familiar with gun fit as it, it relates to barrel regulation and, and patterning of shotgun. <clears throat> when I first came to the company, I was a very novice shotgunner, um, not really educated in shotgun methods. And it's much more in, in, in depth than uh, a novice would expect, you know. So, so a mid-bead, you know, traditionally is, is to, to help you keep your left to right, make sure you're centered on it. But, yes, mid-bead also helps you establish, you know, if your shotgun is patterned for you, wherever that mid-bead is in relation to your front bead is going to help and side to side is going to help ensure that you've mounted the gun properly, and, and, uh, especially in, in hunting. You, you got a very short time to mount that gun right. Uh, so practicing gun mount and knowing where the relationships of those two beads are to each other will really help you be successful. We have all sorts of other exercises we do in that world, <clears throat> whether it's mounting with your eyes closed in front of a mirror, things like that. This is one more way 
to kind of refine that gun mount and and thus gun fit. I love that idea. Renee, can you um can you talk a little bit about what we might be seeing in the future? What are you guys working on without having to kill me after this conversation? What what are you working on for the future? Well, you know, we got some exciting new product coming your way um, for the customers as well as the industry. Unfortunately, I'm not able to talk too much about it, <laughs> but I say keep an eye out, watch it coming. Um, it should hopefully be released for SHOT Show. And I think it's hitting again into that innovation that we that Hive is known for. Um, it'll be a great new site. I think um, it's exciting. We've been working really hard to get it into manufacturing. We've already actually have already sent out a couple samples, um, having people test shoot it, and so far it looks very well. So I wish I could talk about it, but it looks like we're going to have to wait until Shot Show. I'll let you all know about it when I get back from Shot Show. Don't worry, it'll be high on my list. Great. And and Renee, what <laughs> I'm, again? I'm looking at one of these packages, and it's got a bunch of uh, what I think you you usually call light pipes, and they're made out of all sorts of materials. But you, you guys are working in the space age right now, uh, Trevor. You mentioned tritium. I don't think it's on these light pipes, but what are some of the materials you use in these sites? Um, a lot of it right now um, is injection molding, so it is plastic that we injection mold. Um, we do, as you mentioned, tritium, which we um, actually load in some of our sites. So it, it just kind of depends. If you're talking just the light pipe itself, mm -hmm. it's, it's mostly plastic that we use, and that's what usually makes the majority of them. That's the reason why we can um, actually design what we need is through being able to design that light pipe. Again, it's not no extruded rod. It's actually a light pipe design for our sites that we make. Yeah, and it, it, it comes in various shapes as well, doesn't it? Correct. That allow us to injection mold all the different shapes as well. We do have round. We have different diameters for folks out there that want a bigger bead that maybe um, they're not able to see as easy, so they like the larger bead. Or maybe somebody that wants just a smaller bead. Um, they come in all different sizes, all different lengths just depending on what kind of site you're actually putting it on. You can customize it any way you like. Um, Abe, we can't, I can't let you go without talking and hunting a little bit. Uh, Trevor, maybe you're the folks to, you're the, the guy to talk to about this. If you were going to offer up any shotgun hunting advice, whether it's waterfowl, which is your passion, or upland birds, or anything in between, you know, what do you see as some of the things that would help us become a better shooter out there? Well, of course, fundamentally, you know, proper gun fit, pattern your shotgun, know where it's, you know, know where it's hitting in relation to how it fits you, uh, and make sure that's correct. That'll, because it's, you know, for for years I threw a lot of uh, shot into the air uh, that wasn't on the target. So, uh, no matter how long your shell is or how much the payload is, if it doesn't hit the target, surprisingly, it doesn't help much. I've heard about that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, and then, of course, put a high-vis sight on. Uh, and I think, and, uh, uh, you know, whether you're a, a not cross-eye dominant or cross-eye dominant, they both help. We've got a lot of products. And <clears throat> like Renee said, you know, we got different colors, different shapes, and um, some of those have uh, different benefits for different shooters. Green, the color green generically you have to define what that means by a value. But that is generically the color the average eye is going to see best in all light conditions. 
but some people prefer reds or orange. Uh, you know, we've got different dot size diameters and triangles. Triangles can be, uh, I think we may still be the only person that offers a triangle in a, in a shotgun sight. And it's a surprisingly effective tool on a lot of certain presentations for targets, especially upland bird hunting. Really? Uh, driven targets or fast crossers, you can really benefit from using a triangle. How, how the heck would a triangle be better than a round? Well, and I would say this, that, you know, let's take a little note from sporting clays, maybe a lot of sporting clay shooters will, you know, if they're looking at a, a target that's being thrown prior to shooting it, you know, they may use a pencil uh-huh. and kind of hold that up and watch the target to see, you know, let's say you got a, you got a crosser that's on a, a slight dropping slope. And the target looks like it's flying straight, but you know, then when you watch it compared to the to the terrain, it's dropping with the terrain kind of thing. You can do the same thing with the tip of that triangle. And again, we're not aiming, but you can use the tip of that triangle to sort of draw a line through the target. And the triangle's interesting because even an average an average shooting experience compared to a circle, the tip of that triangle has being relieved like it is, has a little more reveal on the target, and especially if you have a driven target. That targets um, changing size, you know, that triangle coming really at helpful. you. Yeah. Yeah. I never, never thought about that, but it starts to start to make psychological sense uh, more than anything <laughs> yeah. else. It's a, it's a head game at that point. Yeah. But, and it, it, it is when you use one in a lot of our sites that have triangle shapes generally are interchangeable. So it'll come with both round and triangles so you can change them and try them in this, you know, same type of, or using for different shooting instances. Well, there you go. I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to learning how to shoot better by using these tools and uh, perhaps others as well. H-I-V-I-Z sites.com. Renee Hernandez, Trevor Young, both of that company, longtime uh, folks at that company. Uh, appreciate your advice, your insights, and thanks a bunch for being a part of the Upland Nation podcast. Well, thank you for having us. Yeah, we appreciate taking the time to have us on the show. Oh, always great to talk with them and glad they were finally able to be available to us here at the Upland Nation podcast. You'll be learning way more about HighVizSites.com. In fact, yeah, that's the next commercial. See what you've been missing with a HighViz site. If you want to learn more about them, go to HIVIZSites.com. Go to the Learn tab which is full of shotgunning tips. And if you're a rifle shooter or a handgunner, they got lots of those as well. But right at the top, our favorite subject, shotguns. Solutions from cross dominance to gun fitting, all right there at highvizsites.com. They're advancing the art of shooting through their unique molded light pipe technology, tritium fiber optic sites. They're a leader in the shooting world, founded to help shotgunners way back in 1990. Six. And PointerShotguns.com is where you get the gun you put the high-vis sight on. You know, all of their shotguns come with a seven-year warranty. Compare that to anybody else in the marketplace. Seven-year warranty. Yeah, on the new side-by-sides, on the over-and-unders, on the semi-automatics, no matter the coloring. Case coloring, nickel receiver, bluing of all sorts, Cerakoting in OD green, bronze, and gray. And you know the best part about those side-by-sides 
and I'm hearing from a lot of you about them. I'm glad you like them. The manufactured suggested retail price is just $7.59. Learn more at PointerShotguns.com. Well, if you're not stocking up now for the upcoming bird season, you better get on it. And I would start at SageAndBreaker.com. They offer everything you'll need to clean and care for your gun. Store it and transport it. It's all there. SageAndBreaker.com. The brand new bore cleaning solvent joins the semi-brand new range bag. Finally back in stock. Sold out the first time. They got one waiting with your name on it right now. Take a look at all the five-star reviews. Incredible product. Heirloom quality products. Stock up on those consumables for the upcoming season. Clean your gun a little bit more regularly. Lubricate it a little bit more frequently. All those things might add up to another bird or two this season. Sign up for the uh, email list so you don't miss out on future sales and new products coming down the road. It's all at sageandbreaker.com. And truelockchokes.com has a choke tube for just about everything. If you didn't get that turkey this past season, well, maybe you need to look at your choke tubes. If you're hoping to add a bird to the bag every few days, take a look at one of the over 2,000 different shotgun chokes for virtually every shotgun made. And all the sub-gauges, too. Learn more about choke tubes and what they do and why they do it on the Frequently Asked Questions page. It's a tutorial on choke tubes. And of course, everything at truelockchokes.com comes with a lifetime warranty and a satisfaction guarantee. And finally, I'm heading there right after this broadcast to Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School. These folks are hunters and instructors, so they know what works on the range, of course, and in the field, too. They also are great dog owners, love the little cockers, and I get to play with them when I get over there tonight. MidValleyClays.com is sub-gauge central, so if you're looking for a gun and something other than a 12-gauge, they've always got a bunch in stock. And if you're over there, like me, their rental fleet of 40 or more guns always has a whole bunch of models for you available to try before you buy. Learn more about all the shooting games. In fact, that's why I'm going. We're going to play the new Helice game. Some people call it uh, ZZ Bird. It's all at midvalleyclays.com. Well, it's great to have him finally on the Upland Nation podcast. I've been watching this guy since he started out on his well, his newest journey, let's put it that way. Mike Mapes joins me from somewhere in the upper Midwest, and that's all I'll say. Mike, welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. You are with Second Chance Bird Dogs, and um, and I, I was intrigued, first off, by the, the name of that operation. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing with that? Yeah, I think the first time we talked was really when I started it about two years ago. Um, I, I basically woke up in the morning after I had already trained and rehomed a couple different dogs that needed the service and sat up in bed one morning and second chance bird dogs came to my head and I thought, well, that's a good name. And I went and made a Facebook group and that's when it started. But we, uh, 
we take in, I don't really want to say unwanted dogs, but dogs that need a change of pace or a reset button, dogs that are having issues or that people can't contain. We take them in, mainly bird dogs. We train them to hunt and we rehome them into families that know the breed and that hunt actively hunt. And uh, so far, it's been pretty successful. Well, congratulations, and I've I've been reading success stories over and over again about you. Um, if you want to learn more about Second Chance Bird Dogs, what's the best way to do it? Is it that Facebook group? We have a Facebook group, Second Chance Bird Dogs. The reason I started a group was I wanted people to really be able to feel like they're part of it. I wanted people to be able to interact with it and comment and like the post and and all that. And then we have an Instagram and then a TikTok, and I do have a YouTube channel. I don't use it nearly enough, though. So, so what was the original uh, motivation for this? We've, you know, I've worked with a dozen uh, bird dog rescue groups of various sorts, um, and they all have, uh, they all are, are they, they're good-hearted. They're working hard at it, but you are are doing things I think a little bit differently than them. What puts you apart from all of them? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, when I started this, I got my two dogs that I still have today as rescues, and I trained to hunt, and I realized real quick that people wanted started dogs, and you look in the pounds, you look in the shelters, and you'll find bird dogs in them, and there's a lot of bird dog rescues out there, and God bless them, they're doing great work, but I think I'm I'm one of the only ones that really is, is separated myself by training the dogs. I keep all the dogs in-house. We have 15 kennels here at the house now. I keep all the dogs here. I train all the dogs to hunt. By the time they're adopted, they're pointing birds. They're holding their points. They've been shot over. They're retrieving. I check all the boxes for the people that want a, a good started dog. And a lot of people out there are more than willing to rescue a dog, but there's always that question in the back of your mind is it going to hunt is it gunshot and that's why it's yeah, here yeah. and i just i think i take a lot of those questions out of the picture and that's why it's been so successful because people can people can trust the process and i keep people involved every step of the way do we need to be down the road from you in the next county over or if i'm in oregon and you're over there in michigan can can i get a dog from you oh yeah i've had dogs go to wyoming i've had dogs come from texas um, I've got dogs on the East Coast, West Coast, all the way down to Florida. I've taken dogs to, and I don't like to ship dogs. I don't really – I'll ship them to me, but as far as someone adopting, I want to meet that person face-to-face. I want to sure. get to know them. And But I've had people drive, like I said, from Wyoming to uh, to get a dog for me before. Well, you know, if you're going to pick up a started bird dog, it's worth the drive or else you really shouldn't have one, should you? Right, exactly. <laughs> that might be the most important prerequisite of all. Right, yep. Well, well, how do you know, how did you become qualified to do this? You, you know, I know you do some guiding, uh, but but did you just learn this all on your, you know, flying by the seat of your pants? I would say yes to that, and I don't. I, I still don't think I'm qualified to do it. But <laughs> you know, I've I've had bird dogs my whole life, and I think that the thing that really qualifies me the most is I've got a house that's a mile and a half off the road. I've got access to hundreds of acres of land around me. I've got a hunting preserve down the road, and the biggest thing, most of all, is I've got really good friends that are well-known in the bird dog world to help me out. I mean, I've got five or six 
pro dog trainers that have forgotten more than I'll ever know. And they literally, I call them and they'll answer and yeah. we can talk on the yeah. phone for an hour. So if I run into any problems, you know, I'm giving those guys a call and I, these dogs have taught me more in two years than I think I could have ever learned from any video, any book out there. Well, and, except my book called what the dogs taught me. <laughs> <laughs> you got me there. Yep. <laughs> but I, I'm the same way. And, and don't they teach yep. what, what, what have they taught you that we all ought to know? Uh, patience. Every dog's different. And I think the biggest one, and I, I preach this on a weekly basis to people cause I get messages every week. People want me to train their dogs now and because they think I'm some dog whisperer and I can make this happen and make that happen. I tell everybody, I said, your expectations are too high right now. Yeah. And that's the biggest thing that these dogs have taught me is you have to, I don't want to say lower your expectations, but patience with those expectations. Nothing's going to happen overnight. Nothing's going to happen in 30 days. You know, I only have these dogs for 30 to 45 days tops and they're not going to be perfect but they'll be started. And if you work those dogs and you get them out and you get them exposed and you learn the cues and you learn how to, how to tweak things here and there and how to read the dog, you can learn a lot from your dog and your dog will learn a lot from you and the birds right along with you. So uh, in your case, started dog, maybe the term may change depending on the dog, right? Cor- correct. Yes. I have, I have some dogs that they come here and they're pointing their first week, you know, and then I have two weeks to work on retrieving. And, but then I have other dogs that it takes three weeks to get them to point the first bird yeah. and they have to be woe trained or I have to get a woe post out. Some dogs, it happens naturally. Other dogs, it takes a while. So every, yeah, every, the process is different for every dog, especially when you're getting those four year old wire hairs that have been shot over they've been shot over for four years and nobody's ever made him point and now i'm sitting here making him point and he's looking at me like i haven't had to do this yet in four years why do i have to start now yeah for a while one of mine i thought was going to be the world's first german wire-haired flusher (laughs) true that (laughs) yeah Uh, mike number one great job keep up the good work um love it second chance bird dogs is where you learn more on facebook about mike's organization what what is the most common reason these dogs come to you what why do people give up these dogs i i want to say that every dog's different but i think more specifically every breed is different yeah um short hairs and wire hairs are my most common i have nine wire hairs right now Every single one of those is here because of aggression issues toward humans yeah. or dogs. Yeah. And every one of them is from a non-hunting home. Wow. Um, I'm not saying that that's a factor, but that's a big one. Okay. Yeah. Um, most short hairs that I get, it's because of energy and uh, no recall. The dog won't listen to them. The dog's counter surfing, um, those types of things. I, I rarely get other breeds, but I do. I've gotten a Munsterlander before. I've got a setter sitting out there right now. Um, but the wire hairs and short hairs are the bread and butter of second chance bird dogs, you know. And uh, so your your belief is these dogs are all salvageable? I don't want to say all, but most, yes. Yeah. I have two, I, you know, I noticed, you know, I said that I had two dogs that I kept, right? And those yeah. dogs are dogs that the one is a, he's a Deutsch Kutzar, Sherman Shorthair from uh he had six homes before me wow and there there is no off switch he doesn't care about you he doesn't care about anything all he wants to do is hunt 
Um, people don't want that. People want a dog that wants to sit with them and watch TV, right? And then go hunting. So he'll be one I keep, and then I have another one that's aggressive toward other dogs. Great hunting dog, phenomenal dog. He's my head guide dog. Um, I'll never get rid of him. He can't be rehomed to someone else. Uh, most dogs are most dogs are salvageable because most of the problems lie, you know, in the pre, in the previous home. And I hate yeah, to tell people yeah. that, but I, I think people also need to hear that too. So. Yeah. Well, how, you know, if we were to, um, to want to support you in whatever way we can, um, is, are, are you looking for anything in particular? Do you need gear? Do you need money? Do you need some kind of volunteer help? I, uh, I, I don't have a donate button on my Facebook. And I think honestly, that's another big reason why people like me. Uh -huh. Right. So every time I rehome a dog, there's a rehome fee and the dogs support the business. The dogs support the rescue. They pay for the food. But, however, if you are on the Facebook page, probably about three times a year, you'll see me post on there and say, hey, we're getting low on funds. Can some people donate? You know, and I'll post my Venmo Second Chance Bird Dogs up there, and I'll get people donate right away. And it's, okay. I love it when people do that. I'm very thankful for it. But we try to keep this going specifically with ourselves, you know. And, uh, you know, some sp I, wouldn't, I wouldn't steer away from some sponsors. That'd be kind of nice. But. Um, if you're on the Facebook page, you'll know because you'll see me ask for donations, and, and that's when I need them the most is when I ask for them. So join the group, and then you'll get in, in, the, in the loop on all of that, right? Oh, correct, yep. Yeah, okay. Well, tell me a little bit about um, uh, how you evaluate a dog once you bring it in uh, to see what it needs next. Yeah, so every dog I get um, is on a different, I want to say, playing field. So I have at any time any given time and it's it's been quite full recently i'll have 12 dogs here and they're all rescues and i'll have usually groups of four and i'll be working four dogs a week on birds i'll be working four dogs a week on training with an e-collar and the other four dogs will be dogs i just got we'll be just getting to know each other yeah so you know that's the big part of it i take them for puppy walks i start over just as you would with a puppy we go for puppy walks with a full full-size dog you're on a check cord we're going back and forth i'm going to make sure you're paying attention see if you're actively hunting and then second week we'll start puppy bird intro we'll get you introduced to birds and see if we have any natural point if we have some natural point i love it that's great it makes things 10 times easier we can fly through the program um, but like I said, every dog's different. We start out just like you would with a puppy, though. Start out with puppy training. Everything's simple. Everything's easy. And then we kind of, you know, you progress from there with every dog as far as how far along they get when they get there. If You know, you, you're working with, you know, everybody's worst nightmare of a dog. Uh, that's <laughs> yep. in large part why they are there. Um, but out of that, you've probably learned some stuff. Uh, you know, the term trial by fire comes to mind. You've learned stuff about the hardest hard cases that if we knew and we applied them to our less than hard case dogs, oh, it yeah. might be helpful. What, what are some of the lessons you've learned about training those kind of dogs? Uh, it's, it's, it's so funny. I'm having a, I'm having a uh, uh, what do you call it? I'm having a seminar here in July um, at the local club, hunt club, and I'm going to go over this exact same thing. And it's all the simple things. It's the simple, small things like crate training your puppy when you get them. I don't care if you're, you know, your dog's never going to be in a crate the rest of his life probably. No one's ever going to want to crate their dog every night for the rest of their life. But for the first six months, it's a must. I mean, to get that dog crate trained, 
to get that dog leash trained, to get a good recall on that puppy when he's a puppy, to work on all those small, simple things, you can't believe how big of a problem they will become when that dog's two years old. Yeah. You know, I have a 101-pound wire hair out here. (laughs) Yeah. And the reason he's here is because he would jump in the mom and dad's bed at night, and when they would go to get to sleep, he would growl at them and bite at them and wouldn't let them in bed. And they called me, and they were sleeping on the couch in the living room almost every night because the dog wouldn't let him in the bed. Oh, that's the do- that's the almost a had- Gary Larson cartoon. <laughs> it's it's awful. Yeah. The dog had, the dog had never been in the kennel. He'd never been on a leash because they were afraid to walk him anywhere because they were they they were afraid of him and they were afraid of everybody with him. Yeah. So he'd never been in a crate. He'd never been on a leash. He'd never been tied up before. This dog was a mess. And for the last two weeks, that's all he'd been doing: crate training, leash training, chain gang. Yeah. And that dog has come so far it's the i tell everybody it's the simple things that are so easy to do when you have a five pound puppy that are harder to do when you have a hundred pound dog in front of you okay so just for that let's focus on the leash because i want to ask you a few questions about that in particular but how do you introduce this stuff to a hundred pound wire hair that's got a got a mean streak i think i i have an advantage and the advantage i've learned if it's one thing i have learned here is when the dog comes here it's almost like it's a new place, yeah. and it's like we're hitting the reset button. Uh-huh. So for I have 10 days. I've got it down to 10 days where that dog, everything's new, that dog's moldable, and I can do whatever I want with that dog in the first 10 days. Wow. And I'll actually kind of restrict that dog. I'll keep him out in the kennel. I won't let him roam the yard. I won't let him off leash. I'll keep everything kind of new to him. And in the meantime of doing that, I'll do all these things. We'll do crate training. We'll do leash training. We'll do this. We'll do that. All those things that, you know, you're like, ah, like this dog's pulling me 100 mile an hour. It's like, no, everything's new. So he's kind of looking around, and I'm healing him at leash. And, you know, I take the crate. We go out to the kennels, and then the crate's right there in the kennel, and we do some crate training. And after 10 days, they start to get comfortable, and that's when things really kick in. But the biggest thing is just confidence. The dog has to know you're in charge. And the dogs come, most of these dogs are coming from homes where the humans weren't in charge. Yeah. There was no alpha. There was no leader. And the dogs know when they come here, I established that with them, that this isn't your old home. I'm in charge. Things are different here. And you would be amazed the the changes that these dogs make in a short period of time here. And they keep those changes. The new homes that they go to, I still stay in contact with them. I've rehomed over 100 dogs, so it's kind of hard to. But the troubled dogs, the problem dogs, I keep in contact with those people. And, you know, it's been a year, year and a half down the road with some of these dogs, and they've never went back to their old ways yet. Wow. They've all been on the straight and narrow so far. Okay, so, the you know, the biggest question I get, um, besides how, how, how come I can't shoot better on TV, <laughs> the, the, the second biggest question is, how can I get my dog to walk at heel? He just wants to pull ahead or he wants to go off to the side. How are you, whether it's that 101-pound wire hair or any other dog, if the yeah. le- if leash training is so important, what are you doing that we could do better? So it's tools, right? Yeah. There's, a lot of, there's a lot of tools out there that are available to anybody. And I think a lot of people are afraid of them, right? Yeah. The first thing... First thing that I do is I do a half hitch around the waist. Yeah. I'll have the, I'll have the, the leash attached, attached to the collar, run the lead down the back, 
run a half hitch around and put some pressure on the belly. Yeah. Nine times out of 10, dogs don't like that pressure and they'll submit to that pressure. That 101 pound wire hair is a baby when it comes to that. First time I did that, he sat right there and looked at me like, oh, that doesn't feel good. Yep, now let's walk. And we walk at heel. And he does very good with it. There's other dogs that I have to put a prong collar on. Yeah. Prong collar is a lifesaver. It does not hurt. I put them on myself before. All it does is apply pressure. It's little tools like that that you can use, and you don't have to use them. Again, it's like the crate. You're not going to have to use it the rest of your life. But it's a tool that you can use to make your life a lot easier for that week of learning to leash train. Uh, that That is uh, so true, and I've learned that uh, many times over the <laughs> takes me a while to learn these things uh but my wife's a real a real believer in the uh, the e-collar for that too that's the only yep. reason that's the only reason i can walk alongside her at the shopping mall yep <laughs> well if you were going to leave us with with one more bit of advice for training dogs that uh that uh that are maybe a little a, a little bit harder to train i don't mean that the loss causes but but the, the wire hairs of the world what 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 other advice or gear or anything else like that would you would you think we should have or you think we should do my biggest piece of advice and it's something that has i've lived by i've I, I learned it from a pro trainer a good friend of mine and it is it's that dog that's always i had a i'll give you an example i had a slick coat wire here from wisconsin and the dog was a flushing machine, just like you said, German Wire <laughs> Flusher. And that dog would get 30 yards downwind of that scent, and he would look at me, and he would flip me the bird, and he would flush every single time. I mean, just, he did it to spite me. Yeah. And so it was three birds a day, three birds a day, over and over and over. It was the same thing. It only lasted about 10 minutes every time. I'd put the launchers out, we'd go out. It didn't matter if I had him on a wall post or not. The dog just wanted to flush. But he'd been flushing for four years, so he didn't care. There was one day. It was a Wednesday night. I put three birds out. And for whatever reason, he went around the bird a little differently. And he paused for a split second. I'm talking three seconds. His tail was wagging, but he stopped. And I looked at him. I flushed the bird, and I said, good boy. Now, that was bird number one. I stopped him right there. I recalled him to me. I put the leash on. We went in the kennel. Yeah. And a, fr- a good friend of mine said, you always stop on a good note. Nine yeah. times out of ten, when I don't stop on that good note, bad things follow, and then it's, it's just worse. So every time I'm frustrated with a dog, I just keep pull- plugging away, keep plugging away. But the second I see what I want, I stop. We stop for the night. Go back to the house, play fetch with them, sit down, watch some TV, but just stop it right there. The dogs remember that. And that, that, that moment will stay with that dog as well as it stays with you. These dogs are smart. They get it. So if you see what you want, stop. Don't keep going. Start on another day. Absolutely. Amen to that. Mike Mapes is with Second Chance Bird Dogs. Learn more about them on Facebook, all the things he is doing. And all, man, I wish I could come to your seminar. Uh, I, <laughs> I've learned a lot already, and we just barely, barely scratched the surface. Mike, we'll talk again down the road. Number one, uh, thank you for doing this. What an incredible service. Number two, congratulations. It's going so well. Thank, thank you. you. Enjoy the rest of your summer. And, Hey, I'll be up in, 
I may be up in your neck of the woods this fall. So watch out. That's good. All right. Thanks. Thanks again for being a part of the Upland Nation podcast. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Renee Hernandez and Trevor Young of High Viz Sites, Mike Mapes of Second Chance Bird Dogs. Sure appreciate your time, your efforts, and your passions. If you commented at one of the social platforms, hey, maybe you heard your name in the last few weeks. Sure appreciate that. All the thoughts and the wisdom you bring to the discussion. And I thank all of our sponsors. You know, money makes the world go round and it makes the Upland Nation podcast go round as well. Thank you to Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products, Pointer Shotguns, Purina Pro Plan Sport Dog Food, Mid Valley Clays, and True Lock Chokes. Appreciate all your support, not just from you, but from you, the listener. Thanks again for being a part of the Upland Nation podcast. Until we talk again, maybe I'll see you at the range.